Welcome to Let's Face the Facts, the rewatch podcast for the classic sitcom, The Facts of Life. Join us each week as we synopsize, analyze, criticize, and ultimately idolize the show. And now, here's your host of Let's Face the Facts, the wonderful David Almeida! Welcome back. It's another week, another show. Thank you for downloading and pressing play. We are here on the Zoom call, already connected. Of course, Matthew is by my side or or by my below. He's on the screen below me. But, but forget about me and Matthew. On our Zoom screen is Ken Reed. Hello. How are you? I'm going to fix my screen so that Ken Reed is on top of me. Oh. <laughs> dreams do come true i wasn't gonna touch the below me thing uh <laughs> this is gonna go right in the spank bank <laughs> oh wow well now with uh with interest rates uh higher you know get you'll get a better return <laughs> and my interest in you has never been higher <laughs> oh sheboygan thank you folks not gonna do better than that good night <laughs> Ken, I forgot to look up. Is this how many times you've been on the show? Is this like five or six? I think this might be yeah, five or six. What do we yeah. do? We did, uh, we did the the we Halloween did, one. We did Fear Takes Fear Strikes yep. Back. We did uh, Seven Little Indians. Seven Little Indians. You've reached cousin Jerry status then if you've done oh. that many episodes. <laughs> so yeah, you did Seven Little Indians. Come back to the truck stop, Natalie Green, Natalie yes. Green. And then uh, we did take my finals, please. Yep. Fear Strikes Back. So I think this is number five. All right. All right. Sounds right. Yeah. Well, anyhow, again, it still is just such a thrill to get to talk to you and have you kind of all to myself after listening to your show, TV Guidance Counselor, every week. And and now you're not just blessing our ear holes, you're blessing our eye holes. I'm trying. <laughs> you're you're putting out a video a day for the entire month of October, highlighting yeah. uh, uh, Halloween episodes from various series and specials. Yeah, I'm trying to trying to be relevant. <laughs> How do you find the time? I don't know because I have a full time job as well. Yeah, and and uh, and a wife. You just and celebrated wife, yeah. what? Eighteen years? Did you Eight, say? Eighteen. Yeah. God bless her, man. I know. I think she's a keeper. Eighteen years. I think. Yeah, she's. She, she ain't going nowhere. No, no. She's got no yep. choice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Ken, we brought you here because you specifically requested that you wanted to discuss this episode, season nine, episode 10, It's a Wonderful Christmas, which had an original air date of December 12th of 1987. Mm -hmm. So what was it, Ken, about this episode? I love I love a, ho a holiday special, first of all, and I think this is the best of Facts of Life's holiday shows. I think there are five. Uh, maybe Christmas in the Big House is almost as good, but uh, certainly the Christmas Baby is garbage. Oh, um, oh God, terrible. <laughs> who shows up uh, in the episode prior to this and is age appropriate, weirdly. She's about two years old. I was surprised, but that's a different discussion. Uh, <laughs> Kay Como. But anyway, uh, <laughs> which is the best joke in that episode. But uh, I am a huge fan of holiday episodes and every show that goes on for more than three seasons, if they do a holiday episode every season, they inevitably do the It's a Wonderful Life slash Christmas Carol episode, which I kind of put in the same category. They're more or less the same thing. Um, and, and that's what we get here. This is this is 
I would say the weird season of facts of life. And so it's, it's just going all out and they do it. They go full on, uh, no ambiguity. Sometimes the It's a Wonderful Life one that's ambiguous. They'll be like, is this homeless man actually Santa Claus? But this one, it's like, they're not even, there's no pretense. Nope. I need to ask you, Matthew and I on our Patreon show did a deep dive analysis of a certain 1977 TV movie called It Happened One Christmas. Are you familiar with this? Art Carney? Marlo Thomas. Oh, Marlo Thomas. I Yes, I have seen the TV Guide ad, but never watched the movie because it looked so boring. Oh. It was. <laughs> it was, but of the little glimmers of interestingness, the part of the angel was played by Cloris Leachman. Oh, okay. And it's her in full tilt Cloris method. Like she's supposed to be a period, uh, you know, dressed like a, a Dickensian Christmas caroler. And she has barely any makeup on. I think they just made her put rouge on her cheeks. So she always looked like she was cold. They just pinched her. They didn't even put the rouge on. Just right before they yelled action. There's... <laughs> she walked up to a grip and went, slap me, slap yeah. me harder. Yeah. Do it. And she uh, and she does it in this little English voice talking like this because, you know, she's the angel that can't do anything right. And she's hoping uh, to earn her wings. And and it's a brilliant performance on her part in a uh, lackluster remake. And probably the most interesting thing about this remake was they you're like, why? Why would you even do in 1977? It's a Wonderful Life was not considered a classic yet. No. People hated it. <laughs> wow. It was on all the time. It was it was because like I love a Christmas story. The, oh. the the movie A Christmas Story. Yeah. But I've realized that people younger than us hate that movie. It's oh. like how we used to look at It's a Wonderful Life when we were growing up. Like the Cheers famously in their episode, they they parody that where it's like, it's on again. Uh, yeah, it was just yeah. like it was ubiquitous and you hated it. But then as an adult, you get older and you appreciate it. But that's how a Christmas story is now with younger people. They look at, they hate that movie. And I'm like, really? We had to yeah. do It's a Wonderful Life. So maybe you should try that. Yeah, <laughs> really. That's your punishment, you little yeah. shits. Because a Christmas story like It's a Wonderful Life was not successful no. in its day. It was fine. People liked it, but it wasn't you know ubiquitous until it was really it cable TV. Yeah, Cable TV spoon feeding it to us. Uh, is really what made it uh, tip over. But so want to get into some nuts and bolts about the episode before we start deep diving. Do it. This was the final new episode of 1987. Even though it is only December the 12th, next week, the show was preempted for a Bob Hope Christmas special. I could have said it with you. I don't know why I knew you were going to say a Bob Hope fucking Christmas special. Yep. <laughs> it's like, of course it was because uh, it's NBC and it's the 80s. That's why. And here's the name of it. A snow job in Florida. Ah, you see what they did. <laughs> Filmed in Fort Lauderdale. That's where they did it. Some one of the military bases there. And all that. And then uh, the week after that, there was just uh, a repeat of an episode for, you know, between Christmas and New Year's. They figured, nope, nothing, nothing new needed. We are taking care of Christmas this week. So, yeah. TCC. Yep. <laughs> <Y> yes. 
So the episode was written by Marilyn Anderson. This is her first and only Facts of Life script. Previously, she wrote for the Jeffersons and for Fame. Uh, after this, she would write for Friday the 13th, the series. Do you talk about that in your 31 days, Ken? I didn't for the 31 days, but it was on my list because I love that show. And I was going to cover an episode that David Cronenberg directed. It's oh. one of the only uh, television episodes he ever directed called Faith Healer. And it actually is a really, really pretty great show. Uh, it stars Louise Roby, a.k.a. Roby, who had a top 10 hit single with her cover of One Night in Bangkok. <laughs> oh, okay, sure. Man, I didn't even know it existed, a Friday the 13th series. Canadian show. Uh, it, it had no relation to the movies other than Frank Mancuso Jr. produced it. And the premise of the show is these two cousins who weirdly have a will-they-won't-they they relationship in the show uh, inherit this antique shop from their uncle who dies who had a deal with the devil and so all of the objects in the antique shop were cursed and so they get the manifest and they're trying to hunt down all the cursed objects that this guy sold uh and so each episode's like a different uh, oh, different object that's a great uh, idea it, there's some really cool episodes there's one about a, a haunted makeup case that like this guy uses to be like a young actor and he has to kill people and like refuel the makeup with their blood. <laughs> and it was like, there's that kind wow. of thing. There's one about a haunted doll house. Like there's, it's, it's a pretty weird, crazy show. <laughs> Jeez. Ms. Anderson also wrote for Murphy Brown and Carolyn company. And uh, I'm sorry, this episode was co-written by two writers. The other writer is Renee Orin. Uh, this is also her first and only episode of The Facts of Life. So this is a one-off for both of them. Um, Renee Orin only has three writing credits, four acting credits, and nothing in her IMDb page since 1987. But what I did learn was, interesting fact, she had been married since 1951 to German-American composer Albert Haig. Hmm. Do you know who Albert Haig is, Ken? No. He wrote the musicals Plain and Fancy and Redhead, Ken. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's my, yeah. That's, that's my your wheelhouse. Yeah. yeah. Obscure Broadway musicals. Yeah. yeah. And he also wrote the music for a little TV special called How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Oh, okay. All right. So there's a Christmas connection there. There it is. Oprah full circle moment. He wrote, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. And you're getting in this season of Facts Life, you're getting a lot of one-time only or first gig writers yeah uh do you know why well matthew and i have pondered that as far as well, how, how the fuck <laughs> well just the idea that yeah the show is established and i guess people you know if you were called in to write for friends in season eight you know joey and chandler and stuff but like you say how do you just jump into the middle of a thing how do we establish beverly ann matters when you've never written on the show before, but uh, what do you, tell me, what do you know? So it's a money saving thing because because of the Writers Guild rules, um, this is an oversimplification, but essentially every season that you're kept on as a writer, your your salary basically doubles. Oh, so if they're trying to save money, so if the presumably NBC kept cutting the budget of the show as it went on, which is probably true. Um, so in order to keep more writers they would get new writers so if you got rid of an old writer you could hire three new writers oh wow which is why you also see a lot of co-writing in this season yeah and and story by and yeah. teleplay by and all that stuff yeah wow 
So, yeah, and the episode was directed by not John Boab. It was directed by Valentine Mayer, who is uh, the one who's directed a handful, I think a half a dozen or so before the series ends, just clearly is uh, the one that they turn to when John Boab needs to take a vacation or recover from a terrible hangover. He's a backup Boab. Backup Boab. (laughs) (laughs) So Ken, we're at the time of the show where we'd like to put our guest on the spot. You know the drill. This is where we ask you, our guest, to provide a one to two sentence synopsis similar to what one might find in an issue of TV Guide. Go. Beverly Ann Stickle is shown a world in which she never moved to Peekskill by Santa Claus. Ding. There it is. It is literally It's a Wonderful Life. By the way, Ken, I never watched It's a Wonderful Life until two years ago. When when did we do the, was it last Christmas or was it the one before Matthew when we did the Marlo Thomas movie? I realized I hadn't seen the original, so I couldn't comment on the adaptation. What'd you think? Uh, it's It's fine. Donna Reed's the best thing in that movie. She is. The the unibrow scene where she's like, who are you? Get away from me. I'm an ugly spinster now. (laughs) Yes. I'm (laughs) hideous. But the thing that about the movie that struck me, and I believe also happened in the Marlo Thomas movie and happens in this episode, is the you want the angel at one point to shake the person and say what part of you were never born do you not understand yeah how many people are you going to walk up to and go it's beverly ann don't you recognize me judy it's it's me me." yeah yeah they don't get it how okay you read the screenplay you know the concept of this you know it's just like how many times in all of these movies there's that whole thing of oh buddy i ain't never laid eyes on you before who the hell are you yeah or or we're supposed to believe they live in a world where it's a wonderful life doesn't exist and wasn't on seven hundred thousand times every christmas (laughs) it's true so so true so uh that does happen here um so I believe you are a fan of Pippa. Are you happy God, that we Pippa. have Pippa? Okay, I thought so. I love Pippa. Sherry Crenn uh, now goes by Sherry Austin, moved to moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and is a country music artist now. Mm-hmm. Um, she was in a great sort of weird new wave group called Color House or Color House, H-A-U-S. House, yeah. Uh, but yeah, she was my first TV crush. Uh, oh. All in on Pippa. And in this episode, this is like a formative small can read moment here where we get punk rock pippa in the in the world gone wrong and i was like oh yeah that's it right there that's what it is uh-huh. that's what i like do you have a do you have a spring sound effect david let's make it clear we don't hate sherry, sherry austin Cren. <clears throat> we just can't figure out why pippa why why because in the in 1987 america became obsessed with australia in yeah, the wake of we, crocodile dundee we get that we get it but it's just like uh, this would have been something that if i were in the writer's room or the producer's room they would have been like we get an australian girl i would have been like no is it kylie minogue <laughs> I, then I no i don't want to hear <laughs> any other pitch no we but, have but, four women 
five women that we are writing for and andy we're good the the network said we need to get the show back being about teenage girls so we need a girl who goes to eastland but i again okay okay and not to be not to beat this dead horse but they were seeing that the golden girls was popular 227 was popular all with a middle-aged to older cast what why weren't they like that we've got a a young woman's show now why uh, why were they like no we need to make this about kids because they kept seeing the ratings go down as the which was not correlation but they or causation or correlation but they were like the girl's getting older the ratings are going down that must be the reason yeah and the ratings were actually not going down by much when you go from season seven to season eight because uh season seven they were in the 8 30 block before Golden Girls. So it was like people who tuned in early, Facts of Life was getting those numbers. Well, then in season eight, they swapped Facts of Life and 227. 227 shot up into the top 20. Facts of Life still stayed in the 20s or something, but it's like, oh, Facts of Life did not plummet. It just went down a little bit. You know, and now is the eight o'clock time slot anchor. You'd think the analysis would be whatever they're doing, they're doing it right. Because they're right. holding their audience and they're keeping this Saturday block secure. But of course, it's just like, nope, we need another girl. I already have the costumes and they're yep. paid for. Yeah. Yep. I we I echo what Matthew says. We are we're very impressed with uh with Sherry Austin as a performer and her later she's work. She's very cute, great singer. And likeable. Yeah, and she's funny and, and yeah. does a good uh does a good job with uh, you know, with a character that is a caricature that doesn't is a plot device basically crikey mate that's a real kerfuffle it's like yeah. oh shut up now Did we have miss- to spend five minutes asking what's a kerfuffle <laughs> and explaining the fucking joke that we just wrote for you yeah yeah, yeah. but she does manage I, I do have to give her credit she does manage to use those uh those terms whether they're real australian terms or not in a way that feels natural like it it doesn't seem like someone doing like a cockney being like apples and pears, mate. Like she'll say it and you're like, <laughs> Oh yeah, that's a thing that girl says or whatever. You know, like it doesn't seem. She crazy. sells it. Absolutely. Yeah. She sells it right or wrong. And but, but what we're gathering is it, it was probably was about 50, 50 with whether yeah. they were real, you know, Oh, it was really bonds or that. But then when she says, Oh, cuckoo, freaking frick. It's like, no, yeah, shut up. It's Rocco's modern life at that point. Yeah. <laughs> And by the way, with her hair, which you can tell is naturally curly and they, you know, the flat iron had not been invented yet. Uh, she's looking a lot like Roseanne, Rosanna Dana in this episode. She's got some crazy hair with yeah. her bell. You know, they say the, the bell shaped hair that was so popular in the eighties. Well, with that, and when some of the, the frizz and the curl comes in, I was like, Oh, I'm a little nostalgic for some Gilda Radner here. I will say one thing in this episode specific to Pippa and Andy who I think have a good chemistry together. They have a good comedic team chemistry. Agreed. They give them three very inappropriately sexual jokes in this episode. Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one of which is funny. I will say one of those jokes is legitimately funny of the three. Well, let's go. Uh, let's let's yeah. lay them out right now because I'm okay. always for calling the show out for sexualizing children. So one of them, they're like, let's go make a snowman. And then Pippa says, no, it's a snow woman. And then he goes, oh, I guess I don't need this carrot then. 
that's oh, funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That is funny. Yes. That's, <laughs> that's funny, a funny right joke. there. And also feels like a joke Andy would make, right? Like that one didn't seem as weirdly sexualized. Yeah. Well, he's the horniest 14 year old we have really ever is. seen in the it history really of television. David, uh, maybe on TV, but David, I yeah. swear to God, at four, you may not be able to remember that long ago. But at 14, the wind blew and I got a boner. Yeah. So, he's I he's mean, a realistic 14-year-old. Yeah. It's just, it's weird to see it now that we're our age. But at, at 14, Christ, I was beaten off looking at Andy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. I think a lot of people were. Uh, and yeah, so there's that one. Then the, the worst one is when Punk Rock Pippa is being confronted by Beverly Ann. And she's like, don't those safety pins hurt in your ears and she's like no it's the one it's the ones in other areas that can get a little sensitive yeah that wow. sting a little sting that a little yeah that's sting a little. i'm wow. like so that's because mm. that's not even really funny like it's not even a good joke um yeah because then you're like so nips or clit what what are we supposed to think what is that yeah what is nothing good yeah nothing good <laughs> And then, and then the third joke, which is another Andy joke, which is actually not as bad, is when Beverly Ann goes, "Oh, Andy, you're not being beat up by a little girl," and he says, "Well, the, the day's young." Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. Because when he is an actual orphan from the orphanage, she finds a a girl is beating him up, and yeah, mm-hmm. he's he's loving it. Let's kind of talk about generalities here, in the vein of "It's a Wonderful Life." We witness things happening that Beverly Ann affects. And then when she is feeling unappreciated uh, and unappreciated just because the girls have other plans. They have lives. Yeah. Thank you. And families outside of this place. The girls are a little dismissive and almost insulting, I found. And, and I get it. They've got other lives. And I, I, I would have written it a little bit differently in that they're like, <clears throat> they're not even like, oh, oh, I'm sorry, Beverly Ann. I'm, I'm, I'm going to visit my aunt. They're like, I'm going to visit my aunt. Why would you ask me that? Idiot? Yeah. Who are Peace you? Out, I didn't met you. Yeah. So I, I, want, I wanted the girls to be a little bit kinder to Beverly Ann. I could have forgiven them, but Andy was the one that really bothered. He's like a real dick about it. Like she just uh adopted him you yeah. know they're like a new family and she's like andy we're gonna spend i guess what would be our second christmas together and he's like i told you i'm going skiing <laughs> basically <laughs> yeah like, well, and he he does at the end he says it's our first christmas together yeah this is his <clears> first <throat> she adopted him last season it was season eight episode 19 uh boy about the house so this would yeah. be their first christmas together because it was after christmas the previous yeah, year. that was in February. Yeah, it was in February of '87. So yeah. yeah, this is their first Christmas as mother and son. He was around the previous two, but was with his other family. And he's like, "Ah, screw you." Yeah, I'm on skin. Screw you guys. Yeah, uh-huh. that, that, that one's unforgivable. Like Natalie. All right, fine. She's Jewish. She's mm-hmm. got other things going on. Uh, yeah. You know, Tootie is getting engaged. She's meeting parents. Like I get that one. Blair and Joe they're a little bit more suspect in their their well, just going to hang going to hang with my family is kind of the the excuse that they give and no yeah. one's like if you're going to be here alone why don't you come along my you know my family wouldn't mind having you for dinner beverly ann 
but I don't think that I feel like isn't Andy the last holdout? I feel like all the girls are like, oh, well, we're going off to do our thing. We're doing this. That. With the assumption being, well, it's not like we're leaving you alone. It's like you're here with your son. You're And this is something in other Christmas episodes they all have done. They all they it's it's kind of established in the other holiday episodes that the girls go away for yeah. for the mm-hmm. holidays. Yeah. There's that episode where they go away and then Joe stays with Mrs. Garrett and then Blair like surprises them. And she's like, Blair, like she hasn't seen her in a week. Yes. And, yeah. You're not dead. Throws her yeah. dish towel in the air. Blair. Yeah. My bosom heaves. <laughs> what is it? Mrs. Garrett's gigantic rack. What is it? They <laughs> on the uh, family guy, which is the three freckles on the left can. <laughs> And it's so funny because Charlotte Ray was never a busty woman. <laughs> she was a stout woman, but yeah, never was broad-shouldered. It, yeah. It's weird too because, like this, this the cause and effect in this thing is such a microcosm. It's like a final destination movie. So like they they had no ambition writing this outside of the four walls and the twenty minutes that we see in this episode. Like normally, it's like if you were never born, here's. Uh, a four series of events that would have happened over a period of 20 years that led to this. This is literally like four things. Like you were on the phone for a minute too long. You fixed a caboodle. Um, and you know, like you told her, Hey, don't drive your motorcycle in the snow all in a span of a minute and yeah. uh, because those three things didn't, it's not even if she had moved to peak skill, it's if she wasn't in the living room that day for right. 10 minutes, that, right. that would have made the difference. Correct. Yes. Yeah. I, I agree with you. 100,000%. That is my biggest note about this is that um, in addition to that, that in combination with, I don't really feel that Beverly Ann was that slighted, that she feels so underappreciated. I don't feel like Natalie was like, don't you fucking touch my coat. I don't care if it needs to be stitched up, you yeah. bitch. Like, it was just, oh, I did this thing. And, you know, I, I felt yeah. like that the stakes were not that high. And I do not believe her getting to that low point of, I wish I'd never come. I've never been born. And other. I'm, I'm not sure I, I, I got there with her. Cause the kernel of that also isn't I'm underappreciated. The kernel of that is suicidal. It's everyone would be better off without me. I fuck everything up. Everyone's mm-hmm. life is worse. Cause of me, I shouldn't be here. That's what it's a wonderful life is not, Hey, they don't appreciate me enough. I bet they'd screw them if I wasn't here, which is such a weird, <laughs> hmm. like it's completely missing the point. So you yeah. think it would have been better to start the episode with Beverly Ann with a bottle of pills in her hand. Yeah. On a bridge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, for it. Yeah. I'm for it, man. Cloris could have done it. Of course. She would have pulled it off. Cloris Leachman could have made Suicide Bunny. Well, let me go through the different individual bits and pieces of this plot, and then we can start talking about any littler details in there. Sure. So in true It's a Wonderful Life fashion, Beverly Ann does things, and then with removing her from the equation, we learn, oh, there were bad consequences. If you had not done the thing that you didn't know was a thing that you were doing, then everything turned out terribly. So Blair, because Beverly Ann is hogging the phone, 
Blair can't get to her stockbroker in time to make a stock trade that Blair presumes is going to make her millions. And when Beverly Ann is no longer there, we learn that Blair loses everything. But really has nothing to do with Beverly Ann. So like, true. That could have been anything that's that stopped her for a minute from making a phone call. Like, How did you find out this tip? How did you know this stock was such an important thing that yeah. you weren't somewhere in public? You didn't see it on the financial news feed over at the student union that you couldn't have gone to a friggin' payphone, Blair. Come on. Was that friggin' important? Yeah. Okay, so that's the Blair story. The Joe story is Joe is going down to the center because they're bringing in the orphans for Christmas and she's going to ride her motorcycle. And Beverly Ann insists, even though Joe does resist, Beverly Ann insists on driving her because uh, the snow is getting a little bit heavy out there and it could be dangerous. And sure Joe, enough, who's driven a motorcycle for decades in New York, didn't know when it was okay to ride a motorcycle in the snow. <laughs> but Beverly M was right. Because when you remove Beverly Ann from the equation, we have the double horror of Joe dying and of Tootie being the one to come in and tearfully report that news to us. Just saw the accident. <laughs> All I could think of was you, Matthew, because I know you're you're less of a Kim Fields fan. In, in some of the performance things. She's not a drama, drama lady. But what we've talked about is that she started so young. There's so much Disney Channel acting that she yeah. just cannot shake. And even, even the episode of 227 that she did, where she's playing the timid girl and then starts acting looser and stuff. It's, you know, we're we're on your side. Kim Fields, we love you. And I know she's you're listening. She's my favorite. And, but but like Lisa Welchel's better at the drama than than Kim Fields is, and you yeah. would think she was a friggin' musketeer. Yeah, you would think she'd be the ham. The the Disney Channel exactly. Yeah, and yeah, now Lisa Welchel is she mops the soundstage with all the other girls in in my opinion, and I think Matthew, you agree. Yeah. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I agree as well. Yep. So that's Joe's story is that Joe dies. Andy's story, as we mentioned, was that Beverly Ann never adopted him. So he has been in the orphanage and worse than that, been getting beaten up by girls. Yeah. Natalie's story is uh, a, a little <laughs> is a weird one. Natalie witnesses a bank robbery and because she runs away from it to quickly report it to uh, the peak skill register where she now works. Not uh, the police. Not the police. No, she's not going to call the police. But no, that's realistic. No. If you've known a reporter, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the police follow her into the center and arrest her, and she's like, "No, no, no! I'm not the one that robbed. It was that other woman who had brown hair, like mine, and a green sweater, like mine." And oh fuck! And Beverly Ann is like, "No, no, you weren't wearing. You were wearing your coat. Remember, <laughs> you weren't going to take your coat this morning because it had a tear. But I told you I had mended it. So, oh no! But because Beverly Ann wasn't there to mend the coat, Natalie's going to jail. <laughs> Which they would feel like, oh yeah, it wasn't her. Like they'll, they'll bring her in to see the people who got robbed and be like, was it this her? And they'd be like, no." <laughs> Yeah, because don't they say like it was a man and a woman that did the robbery? It was yeah. two people the robbery. And so when I first saw this at age seven, I thought that was gonna be Pippa and Andy. 
Oh, I love the sound of that. Which would have been such a better... Like, it was almost like they set it up or it was, like, in some version of the script at one point. Way better rewrite, Ken. We're sending that in the time machine back to the writers. Because they established that it's like a, a man and a woman did it. Yeah, totally. Uh, so the so that storyline is weak. Even weaker than that is uh, because, and I love that you referred to it as a caboodle, Ken. I love you so much for that. I was going to say I was disappointed it wasn't a caboodle because it, it should have been. It was a makeup case in the sort of old school, like, like it looks like the cosmetics case that Samantha had on Bewitched whenever yeah. she would go home to mother. It's like Boris Karloff got made up with that makeup kit. <laughs> It's what Ruby Romaine would show up with at your house. You know, Ruby Romaine, Tracy Ullman's makeup yes. lady character. Oh, yes. Ruby, oh. Ruby Romaine. And then I went in and, and I got and I got told to put the makeup on Bella Lugosi while he played with my boobs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But the makeup case breaks and Beverly Ann transfers the stuff into a Casper lunchbox. And this, there she is in her fucking hat. I'll give it to her. She's going out. She's yep. not just sitting around in a fucking hat. And I just wanted to punch her a little bit. Like, you get an attitude. She's giving you a fucking thing to put your makeup she in. She helped. Yeah, it's like, I don't want a thing. I want my broke up, broken case that doesn't work. And you're pissed because it's a Casper the Friendly Ghost lunchbox? How funny is that? To walk in to your theater friend's and be like, y'all look what my makeup is in. My cat. Yeah, the yeah. theater kids are going to be like, Casper, where's your old man 1940s makeup case? Yeah. <laughs> where's your doctor making a house call bag? <laughs> uh, and and you're going to meet his parents. And what are they going to be like? Well, we can't have our son marrying her. She carries a Casper the Friendly Ghost lunchbox. What the fuck? Maybe if it was hot stuff or even little Lulu. But right? <laughs> yeah. It's Herman like, and I Catnip are on the yeah. thermos i'm in i'm embarrassed <laughs> doesn't make like, sense i i i would have given her something else like like my costume doesn't fit and and beverly ann is gonna sew it and you know so, and i fell down on stage because the dress was too long or, or and like they call like the parents called and said it was going to be uh, earlier, like an hour earlier or something. And Beverly Ann was there to take the call and was like, oh, they're going to meet you an hour earlier. But then like, because she's not there, you know, Tootie's an hour late and their parents think she sucks. And like, like something like something yeah. way easier than that. It just, yeah. Because it what we not... get is that because Beverly Ann wasn't there to transfer her makeup kit into this lunchbox, the makeup kit fell while Tootie was meeting Jeff's parents for the first time at the theater. And, and broke up their goddamn engagement. Like yeah, like because she, she spilled it. nail polish on Jeff's mother's new suede shoes. The Jeff's mother's a bitch. Like, yeah, I know. fuck what her. What a crazy woman. Like, Red flag, Tootie, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> you dodged a goddamn bullet from this family. Oh, uh, yeah. Because isn't this an, with, there's an episode coming up, I think, with the grandmother with a with necklace, the grandmother where she loses the necklace. And it's like, geez, oh, Pippa loses the necklace and Tootie has to do it. Yeah. And, and the only other uh, tendril of a narrative is that at the beginning, Pippa says, uh, do you think I'd look good dressed like this punk look that I see in this magazine? And uh, it's a perfect Australian accent. Yeah, I thought I was looking at Sherry Crenn right there. Yeah, I, I am a professional. Eye. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. It makes me want to walk into the ocean. <laughs> it was that accent was Bonza. <laughs> but she just references. How do you think I'd look with this punk look? And Beverly Ann kind of does a. Oh, I don't think it would work on you or anyone in this planet or galaxy or some. Yeah. Some. I'm 61 years old, and punk dressing is weird to me. In 1987. And- 10 years after really it's become a mainstream thing I know. yeah at this point it's so mainstream it's like yeah it's just literally everything she was wearing you could buy at spencer's they were obsessed with trying to make pippa punk though it happens in like three episodes this series mm-hmm. this season because they thought that's what the kids were into we have this young character now she has the band that sings the song bad girls in trouble and then martika's in her band and tuesday night is in her band yeah but there's no problem with Pippa. Is there when Pippa shows up and she's dressed as a punk? She looks great, yeah. but it, it wasn't like... She's not a degenerate or like on the streets. She just has something with a safety pin through it that could be <laughs> genitals or boobs. <laughs> Which again, her prerogative. Like, you know, that's yeah, not... Exactly. Whatever. You, you do you, girl. But my thing is like, for all the, the silliness and the unimportant things, why couldn't it be... Uh, don't you like the look like Pippa's, you know, she comments on how she looks. It's just too bad. I got expelled from Eastland for breaking the dress code or like Pippa got deported because Beverly Ann didn't fill out her form for her. like yeah. whatever, like anything. Yeah, but, but but that didn't happen today. Yeah. What happened? Not even today <laughs> in the five minutes. Yeah. Of this thing. Yeah, exactly. The 24 hour retcon of if we're being honest. The Pippa wouldn't be there any if no. Beverly Ann had never come to Peekskill. Wouldn't Pippa wouldn't be there. there anyway. No, no, neither would Andy. <laughs> no, and over our heads might still be a functioning retail establishment. Yeah, I also like that they're like, well, if Beverly Ann wasn't gonna adopt Andy, nobody was gonna. <laughs> no, that fucking kid. Yeah, forget it. <laughs> So that's covering sort of the plot points, and we've we've done some good uh, commentary on it as we go. Um, uh, let's just go into some random moments that we like. I will start when shut up, Matthew. When Tootie comes in and says Jeff broke up with me, broke off our engagement. They have a magnificent Blair moment that Lisa Welch executes to perfection, where she holds up a Kleenex box. And says, Tootie, men are like tissues. We use them, pulls out a tissue, and we toss them away. And wait, oh, there's another one to take its place. Just uh, uh, give her a fucking Emmy. Come on. Yeah. And good advice, too, because I always thought Tootie could have done better than Jeff. Oh, okay. He's kind of a stiff. I, I like Jeff. I-, I believe I like Jeff, but we do have a couple more episodes where I need to reserve judgment but i i liked him okay uh, we do have to reference though that that joke is two years old that's from the movie clue from 1985 yeah. when madeline khan says men should be like kleenex soft strong and disposable yeah but you know tv moments but i was not mad at this because this was a perfect lisa welcho blair warner interpolation of that same joke and i am here for it what are some moments that you gentlemen liked we haven't talked about santa claus this actor oh. who is in far out space nuts. But Ken, <laughs> get out of my brain. <laughs> Matthew, I shit you not. Before you got on the call, 
we were talking about the conversation we had last week about what shows were on TV in the 80s for the Latin Latinx population. And Ken said, well, there was uh, AKA Pablo and there was Chico in the man. Those are literally the two shows that I referenced. I was like, get out of my brain. I shit you not. Chuck McCann, who plays Santa Claus, veteran actor, tons of credits. Mostly a voiceover actor. Yeah. Cartoons and video games and stuff like that. But he will always, in my mind, be that guy that was not the skipper in the far out space. Not Bob Denver. With Bob Denver yeah. basically playing Gilligan again. Yeah. They were like, can we get a skipper-like guy yeah. that we don't have to pay Alan Hale Jr.? Yeah. But I did do a little diving on Chuck McCann. Thank you for bringing him up. I might have forgotten that. Uh, he died in 2018 at the age of 83. He had amassed 175 credits in a 57-year career. How many and, of them as Santa? Uh, just one. Oh, okay. Oh, I thought there was another one. Is there another? I think he might have voiced a Santa in a cartoon. Oh, maybe but that I don't know was if there it. was an on camera because he really only has like four or five on camera credits. The rest are all voiceover, like Get Along Gang. Uh, you know, he's in uh, even in Adventure Time recently. But so what you're saying is he's 52 years old in this Santa playing this Santa. Yeah, which is crazy. How's that make you feel, David? <laughs> I'm 54 and I could not play Santa. I well, would Well, you don't never... have Brimley. You don't have Brimley syndrome. <laughs> I'm just saying, I mean, we've moved past Elf at this point. You know what I mean? <laughs> Brimley syndrome, better known as diabetes. <laughs> Santa adjacent. Early onset Santa. <laughs> Early onset Saint Nick. Wow. Well, I'm friends with uh, Donovan Scott, Scotty who people know from like uh popeye and um uh sheena and police academy um for the last 30 years he's exclusively played santa claus yeah and he looks like this person uh donovan scott you'll recognize him he's in savannah smiles if you remember that movie oh my god oh (laughs) that motherfucker (laughs) but he's he he's played Santa since like the nineties and he plays it at Knott's oh, Berry Park. Matthew, but... he's he's the guy in Life with Lucy, isn't he the Yes, yes, that's Donovan Scott in Life with Lucy, nineteen eighty five. Yeah. Portly guy that worked at the yep. store. Yeah. That's, that's, that's Donovan Scott. Scott. So and he's was best friends with Shelley Duvall. He's in a bunch of fairy tale theater, but um, uh, he's the fat guy in the Let's Get <clears throat> Physical video. Yes, he is. Indeed. Yes. He is. Um, but the guy loves Christmas, he sends the best Christmas cards, and he he looks exactly like Santa and has for years and has played Santa in like 700 TV shows since 1990. <laughs> like he does like he is like top tier Santa that people hire. Um, and it, it it's perfect. Like he he he's yeah. the most Santa y Santa ever. <laughs> I can yeah, looking at the the current pictures of him, it's like, yeah, I get it. And and he was a brilliant physical comedian. Like, oh yeah, that's they why he got fully, They didn't fully explore that. I mean, there's one Life with Lucy that I caught where he does an amazing flip pratfall, uh, completely uncalled for, unwarranted, and unsupported. But it was genius. And I was like, whoa, okay. They that was an untapped resource. They never really got a chance to utilize. You know, with with Lucy needing to be carried around. Been to his house. Just saying. You've been to his house? Wow. 
what what are the Lucy stories? What's what's his oh, he's Lucy got stories? some great ones. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. There's a lot. <laughs> well, why hasn't he been on your show? Yes, he has he? Yeah, we recorded at his house. Yep. What? When? How Set long ago? Backyard. Oh, this was maybe six years ago. Oh, okay. That's that might predate before I started yeah. listening to you. Jesus. He lives very close to the high school that was used as Ridgemont High. <laughs> oh, okay, sure. Wow. Okay, so we were talking about, oh, so, so Chuck, back to Chuck McCann. Yeah, Chuck here. McCann. Chuck McCann. Um, I have to say, uh, the, 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 the point in the show when he says to Beverly Ann, come sit down and tell me your troubles, and she says, oh, you think I'm going to sit on your lap? And his response, the missus gets mad when they're over 12. Yeah, he, manage, he manages to sell that in a non-creepy way, though. Like yeah. he, he, like as an actor, he does a best case scenario with that line. I, I would agree, but it's still a cringe line, no matter yeah. how you slice it. It is, and I have to say, uh, the movie The Aristocrats, uh, co-directed by your dear friend Paul Provenza, mm -hmm. that his entry, Chuck McCann's entry, is the one that I like the best because it's right in that section where Eric Idle is saying, "Why do Americans tell this joke?" You don't have aristocrats. How do you even understand the concept of it? And then it goes to Chuck McCann, who tells the joke his way and ends up with, that's quite an act you got there. What do you call yourselves? And the man says, the sophisticates. And yeah. it's like, there's the joke. There it is. And Paul Provenza knows Chuck McCann from this episode. Because he was case. He didn't. He wasn't in the show. But he was still a warm up comic. Yeah. Was, was he double dipping? Was he still warming up and then yep. playing Casey? Yep. Holy shit. I and tell I, you. I have a very important question to ask you about your dear friend, Paul Provenza. Mm -hmm. I know this is not a gay thing. Straight men, when they stand at the urinal, have all admitted they look. Okay. Have you ever been standing at a urinal next to Paul Provenza? <laughs> No, but I have been sitting in a urinal next to Michael Stipe. Okay. You know what? My dear friend Oprah Ken once told me that it's tacky to name drop. Um, <laughs> the reason I'm asking is because his episodes of this season, Paul Provenza, it is all bulge. Like, a lot of it tight is, pants. Holy caboose. And you can yeah. like see, I mean, yep. you, he is dressing to the right. Absolutely. And I just, I just got to ask him about it. I just got to. I recommend right. watching his short lived sitcom, The Pursuit of Happiness, uh, which is actually very funny. Um, and there's a lot of scenes of him playing basketball in small shorts. And that will answer your question. Shut up. All right. In a, in, a, in a tank top, it's this armpit showing. I think so, actually. Yeah. There's a scene where he plays nice. basketball with Magic Johnson. Yeah. If we ever got Paul Provenza on the show, we'd probably offend him within the first five minutes. Emailed him for you. So hopefully. Uh... Oh, my God. Matthew's <laughs> first question is going to be okay, what you packing? He'd tell I, you. I, uh, yeah. Okay. I wouldn't ask him what he's packing, but I'd be like, Paul, we need to talk about <laughs> bulge. Yeah. The Provenza credenza. Ah! <laughs> like a kickstand. Uh, so yeah, Chuck McCann is perfection in this episode. 
as far as when he has a, a joke, a funny line, and they thankfully didn't write him to be too wackety schmackety. So he is perfect. I did not recognize him. I mean, I know Chuck yeah. McCann. I've seen him in enough things. Uh, and again, as recently as the aristocrats. And until I looked at the credits, I was like, no, I, I mean, to me, he was unrecognizable and no, you know, what more does an actor want than to disappear into a role? So he was magnificent. I have two things that stood out for me in this episode, if I may. Please. One isn't one is really a discussionable topic, <laughs> but once she says, I'm Mrs. Garrett's sister, why aren't they a little bit nicer to her? Yeah. yeah. Like, it's like, it gives you the impression that once Mrs. Garrett left Peekskill, the girls just all became bitches. Yeah, but she was like, oh, oh, she mentioned someone who was very close to her. Is your name Spot or whatever? Like, basically, it's like, oh, I remember her dog, but not her sister. Yeah. Which yeah. leads me to the second thing that I found that I found weird. I thought there should have been a laugh when Blair says she's talking about um, writing a check to to bail Natalie out. And, and she says, Oh, you would do that. And, and Blair says, I've known her since high school. And then closes her checkbook and goes, no. Yeah. Yes. What? That, yes. What the fuck was that? There was no laugh. Like, no. That was, I thought that was a funny line, but they played it like, Oh, Blair turned into a bitch because Beverly Ann wasn't there. It wasn't played for laughs. I don't think it was supposed to be funny. It, and it's it like, was. But it was like, what? That's just weird. And she didn't deliver it like it was a joke either. No. It was like dead serious. I played, I've noticed in high school. No, no. And then they just move on. I think what they were trying for and failed at, make no mistake, I'm not defending this. What it is is that Blair at this point has said, I am broke. I have nothing. Right. So she says, you'd go to says, jail for her? Right. You'd So she says, I can write it, meaning she's going to write a bad check. For Natalie. Yeah, and, and then she she, and that, Beverly Ann but... says, so you would go to jail for your friend. And that's where she says, I've noticed since high school. And then she says, eh, maybe not. Well, yeah. I don't think people go to jail that much for bad checks. Uh, if my ooh. family's any indication. Uh, no. well, <laughs> Na Natalie acted like she was going up the river for life sentence. For I God's know. Sake. She was... We can only assume her life of crime has just begun because Beverly Ann wasn't there. Yeah. But Today, I, I, yeah. I would have had Blair close it and say like, Oh, I remember when I would have been able to do that. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. But, oh, God. You know, yet this morning, I remember <laughs> when I would have been able to do that. <laughs> this morning. Well, all right. Anything else, gentlemen, before we close uh, close up our discussion? We've we've hit upon so many things that I'm I'm running out of notes here myself. No, I think a solid Christmas oh, episode, even though it, it's full of logic holes. Um, but it is season nine. It, exactly. And you've said so many times, Ken, on your show that after a show is five, after you get into the fifth season where you say they just start doing some weird shit. Facts of Life was a little bit of a late bloomer. Yep. It's a combination of new writers and them being like, everyone who's going to watch this show is going to watch it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> We're not getting new viewers. Whatever. Nope. <laughs> Uh, now, one uh, very smart thing Matthew has done this season, Ken, is because season nine is the season of all the backdoor pilots, mm -hmm. we treat every single episode as its own backdoor pilot. I love that. So would you watch this this series if this was pitched to you with this as a pilot? 
What's the pilot? It's like Beverly Ann and Santa Claus. We've got a series where Beverly Ann has to remind people who she is <laughs> every time she meets them. I would not watch that show. I would not watch so that it's, show. So it's a show where it's a world where only she doesn't have a bad short-term memory. <laughs> where she's the only one who doesn't know she didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that, I don't think that has legs. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like Quantum Leap without the science or the rationale or the intelligence it's like a boring fugitive because <laughs> she's just there walking but i'm around wanted going, for murder yeah don't you know who i am it's yeah. like <laughs> the anti-fugitive it's like uh would you go away or disappear please yeah. uh <laughs> which one side note i want to mention that when she just shows up in their house right Mm -hmm. And Blair's like, what are you doing here? She's like, oh, I'm just here. And she's like, oh, that's cool. Just hang out in my house, stranger. And yeah. She's like, anyway, see ya. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah no, all right. Well, I gotta go. Hang uh, out actually, in my living room. Actually, that, that moment, though, there is a joke, Ken, that does make one of the, again, Lisa Welchel gets the best laughs out of this. the Easter Bunny is number Correct. She's like, Beverly Ann is talking to Santa, whom Blair cannot see. So yeah. she's like, who are you talking to? She's like, I'm talking to Santa Claus. And Blair says, okay, tell you what, why don't I call my close friend the Easter Bunny? Nine, one, one. Yeah. <laughs> Just, God, I love Lisa Welchel. She crushes it, crushes uh. it. Like she's in like the top three of people I would love to just meet one time and just and gush over for 30 seconds and be like, you fucking changed my childhood. Yeah. You had her on the show, Ken? No, I've I've attempted to get her on the show, but have not been able to. Uh, the Facts of Life Girls have been really tough. I got the close the closest I've gotten is Mindy Cohn and because she's uh, she got her podcast, but yeah, she's abandoned and, it now. Yeah, like and then she didn't have time and uh, and I emailed, I emailed with Kim Fields back and forth a few times, um, but she lives in Atlanta. Uh, so this was when I was mostly doing the shows in LA and New York, but, and then no one can find Nancy McKeon. Yeah. She's, she is off the grid. Yeah. She turned up on the special, the, the Norman Lear special. Yes. And yes. Yeah. So anything else, gentlemen, before uh, we, we wrap this fucker up. I'm good for the wrap for the fucker wrap. Okay. <laughs> Well, boing, boing, boing. <laughs> yes. Well, that has been It's a Wonderful Christmas. Thank you so much, Ken, for doing this. Uh, I'm going to talk us out. In, in the words of uh, Kevin Pollack, if you would sit there awkwardly and uncomfortably while I wrap up and finish the show. Sure. Next week, we're going to be watching season nine, episode 11, called Golden Oldies. And our special guest is going to be, wait, huh? It's going to be Ken Reed. What? News to me. Huh? <laughs> yes, Golden Oldies is the last of the great wackadoodle episodes of the series. And Ken, we can't do it without you. Gotta have you back. So I'm thrilled you've agreed to do it with us. And we so look forward to that. Ken Reed, just so you know, um, Dominic, who, who did our show, who has the Facts of Life podcast as well, he wore a jock strap to our, to our last <laughs> recording. So okay. I just wanted to throw that out there it, it doesn't have to be clean for me i'm i remember uh, when they were watching richard mall's house and yes. one of them pulls out the big jocks we we were talking yeah. about a jock strap it looked a little like it had been starched or something right so as a joke he said oh I, i'll happily come back to the show i'll wear my jock strap well i am in a hot tub that's currently overflowing <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so if you want to watch the episode ahead of time, I will post the link in the show notes and on this episode's webpage. And that is all for now. Thank you so much, Ken, for doing the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, the facts of life are all about awkward, cringy Christmas carols at the end of awkward, cringy Christmas special shows. Just like my family. Oh. Silent night. Uh. Holy night. Thanks a lot, Peanuts. This is what you wrought. <laughs> Beautifulness. Thank you. Goodbye. Mwah. Let's Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and edited by the wonderful David Almeida. Our theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Please visit facethefactspod.com for supplemental photos and videos, links to social media, and ways that you can support the show. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. This is Matthew Arder saying tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts. <laughs>